Hi everyone, and welcome to the Flip Flops Podcast. I'm Angelique Gay, a mom and a writer who recently went through a major life transition. Each week, I invite other creatives and changemakers on to talk about their own transitions, a time in their life when they felt completely untethered and lost, which as it turns out, is completely normal and can even be life-affirming. Today, I am so excited. I have been intrigued by Caroline D'Onofrio since I discovered her writing on the internationally popular lifestyle blog, Cup of Joe. Her writing is uniquely hilarious and thought-provoking. Her interior design style makes my jaw drop. She is a writer who lives in Brooklyn. That's all I will share for now. Enjoy. There was a full moon a night or two ago, and I'm really feeling it. I'm just wondering if you've had any kind of intense experiences yourself or more intense feelings than usual, or is it just me? A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Well, I mean, so what's funny is my boyfriend, so he's technically my fiance, and everyone's like, why don't you say fiance? Why do you say boyfriend? I don't know. I feel like boyfriend is just like more resonant to me. Yeah. So that's what I've been using. But my partner, his mother sent a group text on the family text last night and said, how are you guys feeling? Because she's a Taurus and he's a Taurus and I'm a Taurus. Oh. And so I guess there's something about this particular moon that's supposed to be really shaking things up for the Tauri. Okay. I feel fine. You know, That's great. I mean, so far I feel fine. That's good. Um, this is like totally a TMI. I love that I'm starting the podcast already with too much TMI. My cycle is usually very wrapped up in the moon. Uh-huh. So I personally am at a point in the month where I'm just at that place where I can cry like the drop of a hat. But I think I would have that anyway. Yeah. You know, no, I feel that way personal, as well. Like anything could my place, come out of me yeah. and I'm, so yeah, it just feels very electric right now. So on that note, yeah. I was wondering if you would like to begin by pulling a card to kind of set the tone or the stage for our conversation. Do you have them nearby? Yeah. I have no idea who owned them previously, but it seems that they were well-loved. Some of the wine stains on them. <laughs> They've had a good life. Six of wands. So there's a person holding a wand. Ooh. And the wand has a wreath of laurels hanging from it. And then the person on horseback also has a wreath of laurels around their head. And there are some other people you can see in the background who are sort of marching alongside on foot. This person who is on horseback and they're holding their wands aloft. And so the whole feeling that the card gives you is sort of like there's a parade. And if you are the person on horseback, then the parade would be for you. So it's, it's a lovely card. It's almost like a personal celebration. And I think in this case, given your podcast and the tone of the podcast and in the fact that I know this was something that you know you started because you were passionate about it and sort of decided to leap and the net appeared and I think that's kind of the spirit of this card that it's saying you know how sometimes people say the person you used to be would love to be where you're standing today like remember where you came from and just take a moment and feel proud of what you've done and I think that's the embodiment of this card that it's okay sometimes to just rest in the moment and feel grateful that you are doing something that matters something that speaks to you and and yeah and to feel really good about the actions you've taken and the progress you've made even if that isn't something that's readily apparent to you in everyday basis so so yeah it's a parade it's a parade for following your heart (laughs) which i think wow and also for me frankly like because i'm i'm doing something that terrifies me so that's that's worth celebrating as well so yeah absolutely great Great, okay so great celebration for, for bravery yes so You know, you brought up the podcast and it is about transitions and the uncomfortable middle that you have to go through Mm -hmm. to get to a new beginning. You have to say goodbye and then you have to feel really lost. Well, not have to, but that's kind of the basis for our conversations are really, what did you leave behind? What did you have to mourn? When did you feel really lost? And how did you find your way out of that feeling? And so for your career... It's, you know, you worked at Vogue, you work at Cup of Joe, you write celebrity books that end up on the New York Times bestseller list. You are incredibly successful. And yet what's so beautiful about your writing is that you really share the inside experience of what you're going through. And so I thought we could talk about outside perceptions of a career and transitions versus the internal Mm -hmm. experience. And it's not just career. I mean, I got the idea because you just shared your story about getting engaged and how 
people are asking you questions and seeing in a certain way, but for you personally, it means something entirely different. And so mm-hmm. can you share that transition story from Vogue to where you are now? And then we'll talk yeah. about your boyfriend. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, first of all, thank you so much for saying all of those lovely things at the outset. If I'm being honest, I think there has never been a day in my life where I wasn't in some kind of transition. Mm. Um, I feel like I'm a perpetual caterpillar and it, it might shift a bit in terms of where I'm transitioning or what I'm feeling or what I'm going through. But I kind of think if you're doing life right, you're always going through some kind of transition, even if it's behind the scenes, even if it's only in your mind. And I think that's just something that I want to start by saying, because I think to your point, it's a universal that not that the outside doesn't match the inside, but I think often we don't know what's going on beneath the surface in someone's life. Even for someone like me, where I try to share more of behind the scenes, like you don't hear someone's thoughts, their worries, their fears, their insecurities, you know, maybe their past failures. And I think particularly in this age of social media, we see so many exterior shots and there are so many opportunities for comparison. So anytime someone does share their inner monologue, it's always very appreciated to me. Mm -hmm. Um, So the transition has been endless and to be quite honest, it continues. (laughs) But yeah, so I was a Vogue intern when I was in college approximately three million years ago um (laughs) and and, uh, truly i mean it was like back in the day when it was okay to have unpaid interns which thank goodness they no longer do so it actually cost me money to commute there and i did not get paid but it was worth it it was an amazing experience but i think you know when i was in college i did not yet know what i wanted to do with my life i think like a lot of young people what did you study and i majored in political science I thought that I wanted to be a lawyer, sort of based on nothing, I think, because my parents (laughs) wanted me to be a lawyer. And they were like, you're good at arguing, which, you know, as we all know, is not just what a lawyer does. There's a lot of other nitty gritty things that go with it. But I was like, sure, yeah, lawyer sounds great. So I went to college. I majored in political science. I also studied art history, which I loved. But I did not take a single writing class in college. Not one, which is one of my great regrets because it would have been great, I'm sure. Maybe I would have found my calling sooner, but nonetheless. So this Vogue internship popped up on the student job board and my brain lit up. I think if I'm being completely honest, probably because, you know, Carrie Bradshaw was interested in fashion yeah, and I've writing. Heard of her. I I've was heard interested of her. in fashion and writing. And I said, <laughs> sure, you know, I'm, I'm 20. I don't know what I want. So I applied. I wound up getting it. It was amazing exposure, like truly incredible. Can you describe Um, one moment that just blew your mind? Yes. My job was just to catalog the accessories when they arrived from the designer. So I would take a Polaroid, I'd put it off in the closet, and then we would organize the closet. But there were a couple of times where I needed to run an errand for some reason. Like, you know, an accessory didn't come in on time, or they called in something at the last minute. And so I got to ride in the back seat of the very fancy town car and go to the photo shoot. There was one that was sort of a Wizard of Oz themed. And so there was a model dressed like Dorothy and she had actual ruby slippers that I cannot remember which designer they were, but they were incredible. Who was Um, the model? And there was another time. I don't remember. I wish I did. It would have been 2005. I think I remember that photo shoot. It was with Grace Coddington as the artistic director, right? Yes, Yes, I remember. Yes, yes. And that was amazing too. I mean, just to see, you know, Grace in the hallway, to see the flash of her hair. There was one time when Anna got locked out of the closet and they let her in with my key card. Like it was these teeny tiny little things, but just to feel like you (laughs) were in the When's the book coming out? This is too good. I mean, right? I mean, amazing. Just amazing stuff that I, I mean, for me, I grew up in suburban New Jersey. I was like, oh my God, these people are real. I had only read about The Devil Wears Prada had not come out yet. I think the book had maybe come out but the movie had not come out and one of the details that I loved most in the movie is there's a scene where all of the actors are in the conference room and they did such a good job like each human being in that conference room even the people without lines looked like someone who was an editor at that time it was like being plopped back there so that was incredible but I think that was it I mean those moments were amazing because it was like you know a dream coming to life but I think I also saw that it wasn't my dream okay Um, I mean I, I saw that quite clearly I think what what I did get out of it it was amazing exposure it was very much not my calling I think the people who were doing the thing that was the closest to what I wanted to do I discovered were often freelancers 
So those were the people who were writing the features, you know, mm. not necessarily the people that were liaising, that were planning the photo shoot. What was it about the freelancers? What was it that got your attention or made you say, um, mm, that looks, that looks like <laughs> what I should be doing? That's a great question. And I'm laughing because the truth of it, it, you know, probably sounds ridiculous. I think it was the freedom, if I'm being Ooh, quite honest. the word they, free. They weren't, yes. yes, they weren't chained to a desk. They would kind of, and I can't think of anyone, I never even got to interact with them. I just saw them, but they would breeze in. The fact that they even went in the office, I feel like that probably doesn't even happen anymore, but they would sort of breeze in, talk about something, and then leave. But the fact that they still had access to interviewing the person who did the cover story, say, or being present to report something, or the fact that they got to write a personal essay or review a book, whatever it was. I think I was very attracted to the fact that they got to be creative, they got to get their hands messy, and they still had access to this amazing world, but they didn't have to five days a week report to it. And I think that sort of freedom and creativity probably really appealed to me. But it did not fully take root. I think I said, oh, that, that looks fun, but I don't want to do this. So. So what happened? That was that. It was great. So that was throughout my senior year. And then I graduated. So I spent a number of years, I think, trying to squeeze myself into these more traditional boxes because this is what I had been told being an adult looked like, or this is what I had been told being a successful person looked like. And so I just tried to do that. So I worked as a legal assistant at a very large firm, which I did not like. Then I worked as a legal assistant at a very small firm that was doing wonderful pro bono work, thinking, you know, maybe if my heart is in it, mm -hmm. uh, I still did not like that. I worked as an executive assistant. I worked for a jewelry brand doing retail in their corporate office. It was super fun to play with the jewelry. I did not like that. So yeah, I mean, I think there's often this perception that other people's trajectories are a straight line. And maybe that is the case for some people. It definitely was not the case for me. What wound up happening is at some point during my flailing, I got connected to a headhunter and there was a job open as an assistant in the book department of a very big Hollywood talent agency, which at the time was known as William Morris Agency. It later merged with Endeavor and became WME IMG, which is what it is today. And I think that was the moment, I was 27 or 28 by that point, I think that was the moment where I started to veer onto the path that I'm on now. And I think there was no aha moment for me. It was like, oh, well, this is what I wanna do. But when you go for a job there, one of the questions that the HR person asks you before you even really get the interview is, do you wanna be a writer? Because they don't want people coming in the back door, working for an agent just so they can get an agent. And when she asked me, do you want to be a writer? My gut was like, yes, 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 yes. And my mouth was like, no, I, no, definitely not. <laughs> um, so I got the job and I worked there for five and a half years. And I think that was, I mean, an amazing gateway into the publishing industry, certainly. It is a job that I was not well suited for because <laughs> I was assisting the co-head of the worldwide literary department. So there was a lot of logistics. There was a lot of booking travel and keeping track of the schedule and managing a million different tasks. And then at the same time, reading queries and responding to people and helping with editing and liaising with all of these celebrities. And so I am not someone who relishes that kind of logistical organization as a person, but I made it through. It was a great experience. And I think from there, that opened the door for me. After that, I went to Penguin, where I worked as a book editor for, I think, around three years. And then, yeah, from there, I went to Cup of Joe, which was eight or nine years ago. And started there as a full-time editor. And then now I'm a contributing writer. I'm no longer fully on staff. But yeah, it, it was not a straight line, but more of a constellation in that mm. it's not straight at all. It is all over the place. But when I zoom out, and look at it, I can see how all of the points are connected, specifically to the kinds of things I'm doing now. Like a lot of it came from sort of all of these different places. And then it's an amalgamation of all of these things that has led to my current projects. There's one piece of yours that I read where you said you would cry on the subway. And I'm just wondering at what point in the story was <laughs> happening and why were you crying? If I can ask that. When I was an assistant at the agency, that was a dark, <laughs> dark moment for me. I think not because it wasn't a good job. It was a great job for a lot of people. I think I found myself in a place where, well, okay. So there were a couple things going on at the time, if I'm being fair. 
in my personal life, I had a boyfriend, I was in a relationship at the time with a person who decided that he wanted to move to China for a year. And we were young, we were mid 20s. And I think when he announced that I said, Oh, cool, like, you know, Godspeed. I know this is important to you, like, please go do it. But I don't think we should stay together. And we had a conversation, oh, but I want to stay together or whatever. And so I embarked on a long distance relationship with a person who had a 12 hour time difference. And this was back before FaceTime and we had to do it on Skype and schedule things and it was a lot. So I desperately missed this person. I was young and afraid and I had this job, which for me was just not suited to my personality. And I think a lot of people find themselves in that place at some point. And sometimes it's necessary because you need to pay your bills. You need to take a step. You need to do what's best for you or your family. And this was that point in my life. I knew that what I was doing was going to help my career. I knew I was learning and ultimately that it was good for me, but I did feel like every day I got up and went to a place where I kind of had to pretend to be someone a little different than what I was, or I had to make myself do things that my specific person was not super well suited for. And after an amount of time, that was draining. So that so was did that, probably why I was crying on the subway. Did that change once you were an editor at Penguin? Did you feel like you it were did. then? Yes. yes. So how did you did. make the transition from executive assistant to editor at Penguin? Very ungracefully. <laughs> I... <laughs> Very ungracefully. I mean, you're getting the real unvarnished truth for me today. So I did a thing that you should not do. Really, you should not do it. I quit before I had another job lined up, which is fine. I mean, look, if someone can afford that, that's great. I couldn't at the time. I barely had any savings. I was living in New York City on an assistant salary. It was a hot mess. But I sort of reached this point where, you know, the little whisper inside was like, okay, we're done here. Like, you can't go on. I knew that I didn't want to grow up to be one of the agents that was around me, really was the thing. And so it felt like a dead end to me. So I quit without anything else lined up and then immediately began to freak out. <laughs> um, and then the truth is, so there was a tiny little glitch in between there where I needed money. So I went back to the same recruiter that had gotten me the job at the agency and was like, oh, hi, it's me again. Like I kind of need money. So she hooked me up with a gig at a record label, which was a lovely, wonderful job that was just not for me. But I started, and so I was the executive assistant to the head of this record label. And I worked there for, it was only a couple of months. And then it was one of these just strange moments that happened in life. I was walking down the street. It was summertime. I remember it being incredibly humid and 90 degrees. And I saw a person a couple blocks away walking down the sidewalk and they were carrying a penguin tote bag. And it, you know, it's a very, it's the little penguin that we see on the side of the uh -huh. book with his orange background and a black tote bag. And there it was. And it was like something went off in my brain that said, Oh, penguin tote bag. Yeah, penguin, you're going to work there now. Oh. And so I, I went home and I looked online and sure enough, a job appeared. And I did something that it still amazes me that I did this because as an almost 38 year old person, I would never do this, but I had the gumption to do this. I sat down and I wrote an email to a very high up executive at Penguin that I sort of knew from my previous job. And I said, hi, I don't know if you remember me, but I see this job is open and I, I really want to apply. Could you possibly pass my resume along? And he said that he would. Now, had I applied to the regular channels, like maybe it will have happened anyway, but I did that thing, I applied. I wound up getting an interview. I wound up getting the job. I had to leave the record label, which in a way was sort of sad because they were very lovely people. But I think everyone understood that this is just was better. And then it wound up working out. And it was an editor position. It was. Yeah. That's amazing. So what was, was that yeah, like I mean, to be an editor? It was great. It was wonderful. It was really good. I mean, I think I was well suited for it because a lot of what I had been doing at the agency was sort of higher level editorial work. And so a lot of it felt very natural. I think my boss at Penguin, I owe a lot to because I did not have, so if you come up through the traditional publishing trajectory, usually you work as an editorial assistant and you learn certain skills there in terms of like an editorial letter. So for people who are not super familiar with the publishing world, I think there's a belief that an editor is a person who sits at a desk and corrects people's syntax, changes punctuation. That's more of a copy editor. An editor at a publishing house is a person who acquires books, so actually chooses 
chooses, makes a list of what they will publish at their imprint and then sort of work at higher level editing of the story or the structure, the idea or whatever it is. So part of what you have to do is to fake edit a book. And that was the edit test. And so I was given this messy, messy manuscript and was told, what would you write to the author? What would be your edit letter? What would you do? And so I don't remember what I handed in. Whatever I handed in did not in any way resemble a traditional Penguin edit letter because I didn't know what that looked like at the time. I had never done it. But my boss, who had sort of dealt with me at my previous job, to his credit, said, you know, it's very clear you have no idea what you're doing, but <laughs> you have a good editorial eye. The ideas in here are smart. I can teach you how to write a letter. We're going to take a leap of faith here. We're going to do this. Wow. Um, and gave me the job. And so that I'm forever grateful to him for doing that. But it, it felt great. I mean, it was lovely. I loved that job. I loved how official it felt walking into the office every day and making a little cup of coffee and you know, sitting there with my list of manuscripts. And yeah, it was great. There was a pretty creative edge to it as well. I was working on a lot of fiction there. And I think anytime you're working on fiction, whether you are the editor for it or you are the writer of it or anything like that, there's a lot of collaboration that can go on behind the scenes in terms of speaking about the story and where it can go and how to shape it. And, and I loved that aspect of it. So I think for me, that is when the calling maybe got a little stronger of I loved what I was doing, but I also really loved what my authors were doing and wanted to be more like them, I think, all along. And and so, yeah, that was a good step, I think, for me in figuring out where I ultimately wanted to go. And then how did Cup of Joe come up for you? Cup of Joe? I was just a reader. Which I check I was... every day, by the way, and I have for oh years my God. and years. I'm a huge, <laughs> huge fan of that blog. Yeah. I, I putting I, that I mean, out there. You and you and me and and so and many millions others, of others yeah. <laughs> and millions of others all around the world yeah I mean so I had been a reader for years and I remember when I first found that blog I was home one night and I was sad and I was baking brownies because I was going through a breakup with someone or other and I stumbled across the blog and it was right around when Joanna was getting married and she did all of these wonderful posts detailing all the different parts of the wedding and how it came together and and I was like oh my goodness you know what is this and so I had just been a reader for years and I was at Penguin when I saw the job posting go up and I loved what I did. I mean, truly, there were probably two jobs on this planet that I would have applied for because I was so happy already doing what I was doing, but that was one of them. And What's so, the other one? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know. Probably something in Hollywood, I'd say, you know, like screenwriter okay. or yeah, maybe screenwriter, okay. which is still on my list of things. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's, I would like that's to do. coming. Yeah, that's that coming. would be so lovely. But yeah, so there it was and it just went up and she said, you know, I'm searching for an editor and I applied and one thing led to another. I wound up getting to meet her and I had a weirdly instance encyclopedic knowledge of the site, which I'm sure was helpful. And yeah, I went through the interview process and it wound up happening, which was which was great. Wow. So I wanted to ask about the behind the scenes of Cup of Joe, but I don't know what you're able to share. So can you talk about your experience working yeah. with that team and, and having that yeah. incredible, incredible, incredible experience on this yeah. amazing community? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the thing. Like the community is, I mean, the community both in the office and community yeah. On the site. Both. Um, yeah. I think is so unique in that it is so positive. And I think we all know the internet is not necessarily the most positive of places. So for me, it was a really wonderful introduction to writing for an online audience, to you know, writing for people all over the world who are eager to read, but also are just so freaking nice. And they continue to amaze me. I mean, anytime anything goes up, the comments are so lovely. And I say this and it sounds like, you know, I'm just blowing smoke or something, but truly I feel like so many of these people are my friends mm -hmm. and that is so unique to this world. I feel like there are very, very few places, especially online where you can find something like that. So that I have to say that yeah. during the pandemic, they posted a story and the question was something along the lines of how are you entertaining yourself right now during lockdown? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I sat on the couch with my husband for an hour and a half and we read through the comments and we were oh crying. God. We were laughing so hard. I don't know yeah. if you know which post I'm talking about, <laughs> but the things that people were admitting, like they were imagining oh that their God. neighbors were spies. And so they oh were, my God. Like, it was one of the most entertaining blog posts I've ever yeah. seen. Yeah. The, the comments, comments are Joe are sometimes. Incredible. Yeah. They really Amazing. are. I mean, we always say, come, come for the blog, stay for the comments because 100%. the comments really are absolute gold.
gold. So yeah, so that was amazing. And I think now the pandemic changed a lot in terms of we all used to be in an office together every single day. And that was really lovely. And then that is sort of no longer the case, but it is a very lovely, friendly, tight knit group. And so it's nice. I mean, I do think that's something that you can't find a lot of places where I feel like the people that I work with and the people who read and sort of everyone feels like a friend. And that's definitely a really wonderful, warm thing to be part of. So how did you go from that incredible dream job to ghostwriting? Or were you already ghostwriting when you started at, at Penguin? Talk to us about how that started happening. Yeah. So the ghostwriting was not something I ever set out to do. It sort of happened. And I'm trying to even remember where it started. I think it, it happened so slowly, I almost didn't notice. So when I was at the talent agency, I had not done any official ghostwriting there, but a lot of what my job consisted of looked very similar in terms of my boss at the time had an incredible roster of clients, Pulitzer Prize winners and athletes and food network people and sort of everything. And we handled their book deals and would shepherd them through the publishing process. So I had an eagle eye view to every step of the way. And a lot of the time I would read things, I would work on manuscripts, I would help people put their book proposals together. So I think that's actually how it started. A couple of people hired me on the side to sort of freelance, help them put together their book proposals to sell. And then from there, it sort of snowballed. The first job I ever got was working with a fitness personality on a lifestyle book. And from there, yeah, I mean, it kind of was very Sorry, organic. I just want to say for the audience yeah. that you're not allowed to reveal yes. who you've written books for, right? So I just yes. want people who Generally, are listening to know that. Yes, totally. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, makes sense. No, yeah, generally except for speaking, one, so I think, except for one except for that you're one, to talk about. <laughs> very lovely about. human being. Yeah, I think we're at, I think I'm at 11 titles right now that I've actually wow. written, but with varying degrees of involvement. So some people come to the table and they want a writer for various reasons. I think in most cases, people do have them, whether you see them or not. And like when people talk about ghostwriting, so there's a lot of things that fall under that umbrella. Like if you ever see someone, you know, talk about a collaborator or a co-writer, that's kind of the same thing. If someone co-writes a book, say, like a novel, there's a better chance that both names will be on the cover because it's very collaborative and they write it together. I think in my case, a lot of what I've done is more true ghostwriting, where I'm really just helping that person tell their story in their voice, often invisibly. And so most of the projects I worked on up until this point have been memoirs. And in most cases, I don't even necessarily want credit because it's their story. It's their voice. I'm kind of just helping them format it and tell it, hopefully, in the best way possible. To get to the person that I can talk about, I worked with the actors, designers, stylists, models, athletes, chefs, pro fitness and wellness people. And then of course, so the one notable exception, the person that I can talk about just because I mean, a loveliest human ever is designer and fashion personality best known for Queer Eye, Tan France. And he's a unique example because my name is not on the cover of his book. It is on the title page. I didn't really want billing. Again, it's mostly his story, but he is so lovely that he gave me a shout out in all of his publicity for the book um, oh because he just, you know, wanted to be helpful. And I think that tells you everything you need to know about what a lovely human he is. And so it would be funny. I would get Google alerts that someone mentioned my name on NPR today. And I'm like, what? And it was always him. <laughs> <sighs> I love yeah, the story. I mean, he is. He's the best. He, he's really I mean, the, best. the so amount think... of times that the word French tuck has been said in my home, it oh could be God. a drinking game. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> he would love that too, for what it's worth. So all I know um, about ghostwriting no, the is best. the movie Ghostwriter with Ewan McGregor with a not mm -hmm. a very good ending and Rory mm -hmm. and Gilmore Girls dealing with a nightmare oh my God. personality. And I'm just wondering, yes. what is your, how do you ghostwrite a book? Do you sit with the person and take notes? Do you have a tape recorder? What's the process? And I'm sure it's different for each person depending on where they live and, and all of those things. But can you walk us through? Definitely. Yeah, I can do my best. I mean, that's a great question. Before I work with someone, there's always sort of like an interview period where we're feeling each other out and sort of getting a sense of if it makes sense to work together. And they always ask me what the process is. And I always tell them, and it's completely true, it's different every time because it's so dependent on them. First of all, I mean, the process of writing a book for someone else is very different the process of writing a book for myself. Yeah. Writing as me is super internal. It's very quiet. It's very intuitive. Writing with someone else is the complete opposite of that. It is a lot of conversations, a lot of interviewing, 
it's a lot more collaborative, of course, as it should be. And in a perfect situation, like I don't find my way onto the page. I really just help them unearth what it is that they want to say and put that to paper. So yeah, I mean, in many cases, and the pandemic changed this as well. In many cases, we, the last four projects I've worked on, I think, I did not meet any of them until after the book was completely finished. Wow. Um, so it was entirely FaceTime, phone call, digital. That was actually the process with Tan as well, which was pre-COVID, but I think they were filming season three okay. of Queer Eye at the time. They would be shooting all day. I was in New York. I believe they were in Kansas City for that season. And so maybe two or three times a week, we would meet on FaceTime for a couple hours, maybe at a time. And he would tell the story in the press tour for the book where he would say, you know, we'd sit on FaceTime and he would wear a robe and he would cry. Um, and I think <laughs> that specific scenario only happened one time. So there, there is a lot of that usually. And especially if it's a memoir and especially if the person is sharing those deeper behind the scenes emotional stories, there is a lot of that. Like if you read the acknowledgements for a lot of the books I've worked on, a lot of them are like, thank you for letting me cry or thank you for yeah. being my therapist. And I think ghostwriting is a lot like that too. I mean, it's certainly not therapy, but it is a lot of sharing and a lot of holding space and a lot of people talking and I'm just transcribing while they're How speaking. How do you get them to trust you with that? I is that wish... something of you're aware of? I knew. I wish I knew. I do, I do not know. I mean, I think in a lot of cases, because the interesting thing is in a lot of cases, and there was a person I worked with recently who's a reality TV person who went into it saying, this is going to be really hard for me. I'm really bad at emotions. I don't think I'm going to open up. I don't think I'm going to open up. And I decided to do the project anyway. And the first phone call we had, sobbing. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I really don't know why. I mean, I, I do say, and I very much mean it, it's a safe space. It's a container. My job is to tell the story they want to tell, right? And and they have the last word on everything. So it does feel, I hope, very safe to put all of that out there and say, look, if you want me to tell the story of you, I need to really know you. I need to see where you're coming from. And once we have that out there, then you can tell it however you want. And I think in a lot of cases too, I mean, I am willing to meet them wherever they are in terms of we're talking about a hard experience kind of saying like, yeah, I went through that too. Or gosh, I know how that feels or whatever it is. So I guess that's the best explanation I can come up for it. But yeah, just holding the space and letting them know that nothing bad can come of it. That if you open up, it's only really, truly only good things can come. So is it scarier to write in your own voice or write as a ghostwriter? They're both very scary for different reasons. I would imagine um, in ghostwriting, there's such a responsibility to really mm -hmm. get out who they are and to tell mm -hmm. their story in a way that is them. Yes. Is that part of the challenge? Yes, that's very true. I mean, so I think writing as me is scary because it's personally vulnerable. There's scary at different points. Like writing as me is scary because when an audience reads it, I'm like, oh gosh, how are they going to react, right? Writing as someone else is scarier sooner because all I care about at the end of the day is how that person feels about it. I want them to be happy. I want them to feel like they're well represented. Like, you know, it's their voice and it's profound responsibility in a lot of ways. Like you're the guardian of their story and their secrets. And so, and so, yeah, I mean, that can be very terrifying. I'll say I'm very grateful. I have never had an experience where I've sent someone the manuscript and had them come back and be like, oh my God, this is horrible. It sounds nothing like me. But <laughs> that is always a fear, certainly. It is. It's a different kind of responsibility, but it's definitely a responsibility and, and that can feel like a heavy one. But I also think, you know, if you're doing your job well and you're working together very closely, then hopefully they more or less know what's coming because it's not going to be that different than, than what you've talked about. What is it that you're doing now that you're scared by? You mentioned oh that my. at the beginning. Everything. Um... <laughs> So everything I just got finished with another book that wasn't mine. And so I'm focusing on my own projects for a moment. And to me, that is also really scary for a different reason. I'm working on a novel and I just started sending out a newsletter. It's funny. It feels really great on the one hand. And then it also feels really scary on the other because it is kind of that thing people say, like, if you want to put something out there, you need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But I'm not comfortable yet so I'm just uncomfortable it's like a good kind of discomfort in that I I'm trying to share 
in a different way than I have before. I wanted to ask you if you could read something from Cup of Joe. I'm just going back to Cup of Joe. And one of my favorite articles that you wrote was when you shared photos of your ridiculously incredible apartment. I mean, oh, I was, thank you. I remember sitting at my desk and my jaw dropped. Oh, thank you. And thank you so I'm, much. It's true. I'm sure it was for so <laughs> many people. I mean, you're just so original and it blew my mind. And then I read the words and I was literally laughing out loud and I from oh, time to you. time will smile <laughs> as I read an article but I will never forget it that's why I wanted to talk to you so I was wondering if oh, you I could read the little paragraph about the noises your New York yes. apartment made that made me laugh yes. out loud <laughs> thank you I would love to yeah, so this was my previous living space, but I will say that a lot of my New York apartments have had the same issue. But this one had particularly vocal heating system, <laughs> so I would love to read this. Okay, so it says, on the nighttime chorus, The darkness is very conducive to sleeping, but the noises are not. The radiators all have nicknames based on the sounds they make. There is dragon, hissing witch, locust and serial killer who clangs and bangs <laughs> like someone's breaking into the apartment with an ice pick. Sometimes they'll all erupt in a cacophony in the middle of the night, prompting me to check if serial killer is actually a serial killer. Want to sleep over? <laughs> I mean, so true good. story. Oh, I, all of I, that. I, Very true story. Serial killer, like, I did not sleep maybe for two years living in that place, but... <laughs> It looked good. It sounded terrible, but that's from New York, I think. <laughs> and then I wanted to ask you about ghostwriting. Do you ever have a moment where you've written something that is, let's say, particularly witty or intelligent and someone else perhaps uses it? Have mm -hmm. you ever had a moment where you say, hey, that's my line? Um, I, do I say it publicly? No. Oh, no, do certainly not. My oh, my God, yes. Like Certainly every not yes, publicly. Yes, yes. You are a All the time. complete professional. But I'm wondering if as a writer, All you're like, the time. oh, oh yes. yes, 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 yes. Yes. But you know what? Here, well, actually, here's the thing. So if if I've done my job well, then that shouldn't happen too often. You know what I mean? But it might be that something is presented in a way that like the timing is like the comic timing is better, whatever it is. I think when it bothers me is actually not if the public thinks the line is great. I think when it would bother me is if you have the odd person who you're working with where they actually truly revisionist history believe it was their line. And that's unfortunate because... <laughs> I think everyone just wants to feel appreciated. And so then you start to be like, oh my God, am I an invisible person? So in that case, yes, I feel like it has happened to me. But for the most part, it's not a regular occurrence. And that's why Tan Fran's putting your name on it. What a doll. Yes, truly lovely. Truly the best. Can we talk about your decor style? I just need to know. Yes. I mean, I know you love going to museums. I would imagine you love the theater. Your closet was like, you pretended that you were Phantom of the Opera. Mm -hmm. And it's just <laughs> dark colors and hands. And we're, we'll get to hands. That's one of the most beautiful things in your newsletter that I've read so far. Yeah, just talk to me about how you approach decorating. Because it's really <laughs> so personal and so theatrical. Thank you. I'm glad you asked this. I think decorating a space is secretly my favorite thing to do. I hate moving, but when whenever I do it, the reward of getting to land and like rearrange everything almost makes up for the terrible moving experience. So decorating is maybe the only time in my life when I actually plan. I'm really big on collecting inspiration images. So how do you do that? Definitely photos of people's homes, both. So I'll go through, I have a lot of art books. I love to collect decor books. I, I'll go through all of my like interior design books and put post-its on any pages that speak to me, but I don't limit myself to that. I also love images of anything. It could be a garment, a pattern, landscape, a cover, you know, just something that, that seems. And then I will also make a Pinterest board with photos of the pieces that I already own and then some inspiration images that are similar or the same as what I pulled. And that helps me see how everything might work together in the actual space. And then the other thing I like to keep in mind, which is probably weird, but I try <laughs> in my own brain to center something on themes. So in a former apartment, I remember thinking I wanted it to be a sort of Gatsby-esque 1920s speakeasy feel. 
meets mm. a yacht club from the 70s. Now, <laughs> I have never set foot in either of those places, but it made sense in my brain. And I think it helped me kind of winnow down in terms of paint colors, how the things would work together. So I have these larger themes and then I try to filter is there, it. Is there music that goes with these themes? No, but there probably should be. Now that you say that, I feel like in my next space, I will try to make a soundtrack <laughs> as well. But yeah. I wanted to know if you could read from your, first of all, tell us what is the name of your newsletter? How do we read it? Why is it called what it's called? And then can you read, yeah. please, what you wrote about hands that to me just felt I like it was right out of a would love to. beautiful book. I would love to. Um, so it's called Between a Rock and a Card Place. I had wanted to start a newsletter for a long time. I think I saw a lot of other people having newsletters and it seemed like a lovely thing to do, but I kept talking myself out of it. And so there was one night, it was sort of late at night and I was hanging out with the boyfriend and I said, you know, I think I'm just going to do a newsletter. I'm going to do a newsletter and I'm going to incorporate tarot, which is a great love of mine that I have not been super public about. I think sometimes because people think it's weird. And so he said, great, great. What are you going to call it? And we lobbed some names back and forth. And one of them was between a rock and a card place. And I said, that is ridiculous. I cannot call it that. But it made me laugh. And then as I brainstormed names over the next couple of days, it just really stuck with me. And I was like, nope, that's the name. So that is why it's called that. So between a rock and a card place speaks to the larger theme of the newsletter, which is I usually start out with some piece of writing about a larger human experience sort of topic, something that I'm struggling with, something that I'm working on, something that happened. And then it ends with a weekly pull of a tarot card. And it is on Substack and it comes out every Sunday evening, Eastern time. And I chose that time because as a person, I have long dealt with the Sunday scaries as they call them. And so I thought it would be sort of a nice ritual to put this thing together and share it at a time when people can read it as they're beginning their weeks and feel like they have a friend out there. I love that. So can you read us what you wrote about hands? Yes, I would love to. So just going into it so people understand, this went with a larger piece about objects and meaningful objects. And so this is about how I collect hands in my home. One thing you cannot miss is the presence of hands. I collect them. Not in a Hannibal Lecter sort of way, but likenesses of hands made of porcelain and plaster and iron and brass. They are, after all, what make us human. I love what they symbolize, creation, help, connection. Last weekend, I visited a friend and her two-month-old daughter who spent much of the time amazed and delighted by her own tiny hands. Into and out of her mouth they went, clasping around each other, groping at anything within reach. As babies, before we develop vision or balance, we grasp. It is how we come to know the world, how we make sense of our existence. Even with the wisdom of years, there is much that will never make sense. We cannot comprehend the passage of time. We cannot reverse it, slow it, control it. And so our attachments help anchor us in space. This is the magic of matter, to build a bridge between moments, to make tangible what cannot be known. When I picture the end of the world, which I try not to do too often, my mind always ends up in the same place. After lingering on art and architecture and literature, I arrive at the image of hands. Hands holding other hands, holding tight to what is dear. This is where I ultimately settle, bolstered by the hope that the same hands that shape the world are also the ones that can save it. In the meantime, we hold on. Let us reach. Let us grasp. Let us pray. <laughs> Thank you. Of course. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm so moved that you're moved. It's oh, like, you know, it's beautiful. I wanted to ask you about your favorite places in New York. Yes. I wanted to know favorite coffee place in New York. Oh, that's hard. I love coffee. I have a couple. I love Stumptown, which was not born in New York City. I think they're scattered all around the U.S., but they have locations here. Their coffee is very delicious. I adore a local coffee place in Brooklyn. It's called White Noise. They have delicious coffee, and everyone who works there is the absolute nicest. Favorite place to eat? I am eating a mostly plant-based diet at this point. So I think what I would say is a plant-based restaurant, but I would like to couch it by saying I've brought all Omnivore friends there who complained before they ate it. Afterward, they loved it. It's called Ha Ha Ha, spelled J-A-J-A-J-A. They have various oh. locations around Brooklyn and Manhattan. Everything is good, but if you go there, you must order the nachos. Okay. Favorite park to hang out in? Oh, that's, that's a hard one. We have so many great parks. You really do. I think 
I mean, my brain, of course, jumps to Central Park. Boring answer, mm-hmm. but it's amazing. It's like you get eight different do you parks have a, in one. Do you have, like, a special bench that you love or a part um, like, is it near the Alice in Wonderland? Is it near the fountains? I like, so I'm partial to the part where you enter near Columbus Circle because I lived mm. near that sort of location in my 20s, and I used to run that loop every day. So I feel like that, for me, is sentimental. But I'll also say, to have a you know, more creative answer, Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn is mm. Mm. absolutely gorgeous it's very big it's beautiful it's a gorgeous place to walk especially this time of year when the leaves are their brightest so it may not be a place that a lot of visitors would think to go but i do highly recommend it it's it's a beautiful beautiful place there's a gorgeous view of the skyline actually from multiple points in the park wow do you have a favorite museum or you could alternatively answer the question favorite exhibit that you've ever seen in new york you decide how to answer oh, wow so i love the Met. The Metropolitan Museum of Art is probably one of my favorite places on earth. I love, I think the Egyptian wing is probably my favorite, although the old masters are also incredible. Favorite exhibit I've ever seen, quite different. I remember seeing the gates when I was in college, which was fabulous. What was that? It was uh, Christo and Jean-Claude, and it was uh, an exhibit, I believe it was in Central Park. It was incredibly long. It was called The Gates, and it was these large gates that were constructed, and within each gate, there was a very large flag that would just flap and flap. It's very immersive, and you take in the whole experience of all of these big flags flapping in the wind, and it was beautiful and unexpectedly very moving. Why was it moving? What did you take away from it? I think something about impermanence. Mm. That just this huge thing could be imagined, could be created, could be built, and that all of these people could travel here to see it, to walk through nature and see sort of this imprint that a human being had put upon the land. But it was only for a finite period of time. And I think when I saw it, it was also winter. And so it was this incredible juxtaposition of a stark, cold winter landscape with these incredibly bright orange flags just flapping among it. And so I think, yeah, it was just the movement and the color and the sense of transience was really moving. Favorite bookstore? This one is hard. I know. Like asking me to choose my favorite child. I think I'm going to go with a little bit of a curveball here. There's a place Ooh. called Hinokuniya. Oh, never heard it's of it. It's near Riot Park. It is a Japanese bookstore, and it's very large, but they have an incredible selection of everything you'd ever want to find, including books in English. It's super fun to explore. They have a really incredible selection specifically of art and design books, and it's a really good place to look for gifts as well. It's a really fabulous bookstore. Favorite place to do yoga? I'm more of a home practice person mm-hmm. at this point in time, but I will say I did my yoga teacher training at Pure Yoga in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I don't practice there regularly, but they do have amazing teachers. One of them by the name of Yogi Charu, who taught us about the sutras and the more spiritual aspects of yoga. So I'd say anywhere that Yogi Charu is teaching is my favorite place to do yoga, even if that is virtual. He does do online classes and his yoga nidra meditation practice in particular is legendary. So I highly recommend that to anyone. How have you maintained your mental health during the pandemic? You practice yoga and meditation and it's a nice segue. Yeah, that's a great question. So I have a little bit of a weird answer for this, but it's something I started doing more so recently since the pandemic and and I do find it really helpful. So one of my self-care practices is to do something that makes me feel small in a good way. Because I find that if I can manage to get perspective, whatever it is that I'm stressed or worried about or grappling with feels more manageable. So in some cases, that might mean going for a walk, taking in nature, looking at scenery. You know, here in New York, I think sometimes if I can get a glimpse of the skyline, it's helpful to see all of the windows and sort of imagine all of the people who are behind those windows and think about what they might be grappling with. And then in a particularly low moment last year, I actually bought a book with photos of space. So like stars and constellations and black holes and galaxies and like the whole thing. And that, if I'm indoors and I need something, that book is my go-to because I think looking at pictures of space and the vastness of it and the mystery of it immediately puts me at ease because I can't help but feel teeny tiny. And I also can't help but feel awe. And I think that those two things together have been incredibly helpful. Oh, what an amazing answer. Thank you. It was a great question. (laughs) I wanted to know, first of all, congratulations on your engagement. And can you share how you knew he was the person that you were willing to embark on this journey with? Yeah. 
It's a great question. I can't pinpoint a single aha moment. For me, it's a little bit of a cliched answer, but the thing that always stood out was that it just feels easy, which is to say, not like, la la, everything just fell into place. Like we've definitely had a lot of conversations about things and we're still people and there are things we have to work through. But I think when I say it feels easy, I can fully be myself. I have never worried that I needed to hide or change any part of my person in this relationship. I think there is a lot of mutual respect there, which is a big one. And yeah, I think the other thing is I I've never doubted his commitment. So I think we're both people where it took us a minute to get to the point where we were like, oh yeah, marriage, marriage is cool. I think there was a lot really with the institution that we wanted to mm. to work on and sort of feeling like, you know, there are a lot of unknowns in any future endeavor, but I never doubted his commitment and I've never doubted that we both always want the best for each other. And I think that is something I'm super happy to sign up for. Like, I would rather that than a person who promises the world but can't deliver it. Wow. So when did you know that you're a writer? And when I say that, I don't mean just a writer, but a talented writer that can make a living as a writer. I'm still waiting. <laughs> In some moment, still waiting but, um, any minute now. <laughs> any minute now. Sometimes your purpose speaks in a whisper instead of a shout. And so if I think back on those moments, I think there are three that stood out to me. I had always been writing. I can't remember a time when I wasn't writing, but growing up, I think I was told, you know, that's a hobby, not a job, which mm. was well-intentioned, but it put me off course for a while. And so the first whisper I can remember, it was in eighth grade. And my English teacher, who was lovely, told me to stay after class one day. And I got all nervous because I thought I must be in trouble for something. And she said, you know, this essay, it was one of those tests, you know, that you had to take it was timed and they sent it to the state or whatever. And she said, this essay, you should really consider becoming a writer. And I looked her in the eye and I said, oh, thanks, but that's not a job. Hmm. And I have tried to find her <laughs> since then and I can't. So thank you, Mrs. White, wherever you are, for being the first person to tell me that. And then the second whisper, when I was in high school, I worked in our local library and I shelved books and charged people their late fees and did all the library things and the full-time employees there. It was this incredible cast of characters, like something out of a sitcom. And so when it was time for me to apply for college, I wrote this humorous piece about my experiences working in the library. And I remember, you know, my parents had some reservations about this and my counselor was like, oh, it's kind of funny, but like most people don't do funny. And so I sent it in. And when the spring rolled around, I got multiple letters from school saying, this is the best essay we got this year. Here's some information about our creative writing programs. And again, <laughs> talk about ignoring science from the universe. I was like, oh, cool. That's so nice of them. Went on with my life. Didn't take a single writing class. Didn't think it mattered. And then, yeah, I mean, as we talked about, I, I probably spent much of my adult life not pursuing this thing that I knew that I loved because I didn't think it was something that anyone could earn a living at, really, unless you were incredibly talented, incredibly lucky. And even so, I mean, I think there's a lot of perception that people who have a publishing deal or are commercially successful must be financially successful. In a lot of cases, that's not true. Just because publishing, unfortunately, is, is an industry where you know a lot of books never earn out their advance. A lot of people never see the big payday. But nonetheless, I think the final whisper for me was actually a shout. I wrote a series of middle grade books a few years back, which was partially at the urging of my best friend and a former editorial colleague. And before the first one published... Can you say the title out... of your books? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so the, the series is called Best Babysitters Ever. The first book is just called Best Babysitters Ever. And then the second two have subtitles. But yeah, it's a humorous series about three young women who decide to start their own babysitting club, sort of modeled after the babysitter's club, but they're far more interested in the money than the children. Uh, <laughs> humor. So before the first one published, I found out it was going to be reviewed by the New York Times, which was A, terrifying, B, incredibly rare and very lucky because children's books don't often get coverage. And it had found a spot in this larger piece about you know humor for teens. And then the review came out and it was good. <laughs> And I couldn't believe it. It's probably still top three life moments for me. And I, I think that was it. Like, that was the biggest, like, oh, like, I can do this. And I did it. 
because I can talk myself out of a lot of things, but like you can't argue with the Times book review. No, no, you can't. Um, <laughs> no. So my boyfriend had it framed for me, which was very lovely. I, sometimes I still forget that like this is a thing that I can do. So it's nice to have like a, a physical reminder. Wow. So why did you start your newsletter? The newsletter unofficially, I think it came about because I was craving more connection. And over the course of the pandemic, a lot of my local friends moved away. A lot of circumstances shifted, you know, for me and for, for many others. And I had a lot of thoughts and for lack of a better word, a lot of care that I wanted to put out there. And over the course of all that time, the tarot too had been such a great tool and a salve for me. And I knew I wanted to incorporate that somehow. So I started this newsletter. The structure, I mean, the way that a newsletter works, it's not officially a conversation. Most people don't comment because you need to to sign up for Substack in order to be able to do that, although I welcome comments. But I, I aim to pose questions, I hope, that get people thinking. I definitely, like, I don't want it to just be about my experience. I don't want to offer up any sort of prescriptive answers. The tarot portion does not aim to tell the future. It's not like tips for being a person. Like, there's a lot of that out there. Mm. Um, I really want to spark conversations about some of the more universal thoughts and feelings that we experience. And I think like in an ideal world, like if a letter asks, say, like, what are you afraid of right now? Or what is it that you want permission to do? If there's 30 people or 30 of them have totally different answers, and that's great. I just want every person to feel like they have a place here and like I'm speaking to them no matter who they are, where they are, how their life is currently shaped. You say that Actually, you want to put care yes. in the world. What do you mean by that? So I think there have been a lot of touchstones for me online and, you know, Cup of Joe certainly was one of them long before I ever worked there where you sort of feel like, you know, you're connecting to a human being. I think that, you know, some of the best writing is written like it's one person talking to one other person, no matter how big the audience is. And so I think in an ideal world, I want that connection to be there where maybe if someone is having a bad day or maybe if someone else does feel alone and they get this newsletter it sort of helps lift them to a place where they feel a little less so a reader sent me the loveliest email a couple weeks ago unprompted and and she said every time i get the newsletter it feels like you come over for tea wow and that to me is the highest compliment that anybody can possibly pay beyond you know anything technical or anything about the topics or the writing or anything like that. I think the thing that I'm really aiming for, which I don't always do, but the thing that I'm always aiming for is connection. And so if it can provide that to one person, then I feel like it has done its job. I love that. That's why I started the podcast too, because I needed connection. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I relate to mm -hmm. that. And <laughs> I can definitely say that your newsletter accomplishes that. And, you know, when you wrote the other day to take a five minute vacation and just appreciate the leaves, like that really spoke to me as well, because the leaves were so beautiful last week. So thank you. I'm loving it. There's a depth there that I really appreciate. So congratulations. And then speaking of connection and wanting to help people what advice do you have for someone who's going through a transition or is having a difficult time right now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, first of all, I think the biggest thing is to know and to trust that you are not alone, which I know from personal experience, it can be really hard. I think particularly if you are experiencing grief, if you are experiencing depression, I think a lot of that makes you feel like you are the only person in the world experiencing this feeling. But I promise you, you can go anywhere and most people are going through some kind of transition, even if you can't see it, even if they don't share it. Um, I promise that it's there. I would say to trust in the fact that no feeling is final. If something is uncertain or tricky mm. or uncomfortable, even if it's something you didn't ask for, even if it's the worst feeling in the world, you're likely learning from that and you will come through it. And then lastly, I'd say, don't go it alone. You don't have to, if you can, confide in a loved one, in any trusted person. I think therapists are great. There's less stigma around that than there used to be. But even so, I mean, don't hesitate to reach out to someone to talk to. And I think oftentimes, you know, the more you do that, you'll discover that other people do have similar stories to share. So don't mm. carry more than you need to. I think also in that bucket, depending on the particular transition, if it's a difficult one, I always recommend the book When Things Fall Apart by Pina Chodron. I personally, I've turned to that again and again in various circumstances. It's really grounded and wise and full of wisdom. 
she is a Buddhist nun. You do not have to be Buddhist or even interested in Buddhism to read it. It just sounds like really sound advice from a great friend. Wow. Well, thank you for that. And I love what you said about the newsletter. When you write your newsletter, you're writing as if it's towards one person. Mm -hmm. Is that typically how you write? You pick a muse or a person that you're speaking to? It's always one person? So what I try to do, at least for me, I mean, I guess it depends on the subject. When I'm writing something, I don't necessarily have one human in mind. Like, this is for my best friend. I will just act like I'm sitting down with an imaginary human and we are having a conversation and I, maybe almost like an imaginary therapist, but like I'm sharing this part of myself, this unseen part of myself with them. And then when it's actually on the page, then I will go back and say, okay, if this were a conversation I was having with my one best friend, if this was a conversation I was having with my former roommate, if this was a conversation I was having with my former boss, who's like a scary man who I would never bear my soul to, you know, is could all of this be resonant for all of those different people who come from very different backgrounds and who lead very different lives? And if the answer is mostly yes, then I feel like I've hit on something that's universal enough that I feel comfortable sharing it with wider audience. That's so interesting. Wow. Well, thank you so much again for all your time. And oh my gosh, I will definitely you. read that book. And thank you. Yes. Check it out. Thank it's you wonderful. for sharing your story. And thank you for the newsletter. And thank you so much for thinking of me for this opportunity. It's oh my wonderful. goodness. Of um, course. You were always so on the top of the list. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Oh, it's true. I, no, it's true. Is, uh, no, I, that's so, that's so, that's so This is, this is a, a life moment for me, for sure. Well, it's a life so. moment for me too. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And, um, absolutely. And thank you for bearing your soul. Of course. And of course. it's a beautiful Anytime. soul. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> How cool is this woman? I love how she describes her career as a constellation. As someone with a non-linear career myself, I can definitely relate. It's a great word. I find it so interesting that she kept her heart's desire a secret for so long, even from herself. I'm glad she finally got on board with what the universe was trying to tell her. I got shivers when she described the knowing that came when she was walking down the street and she saw a penguin publishing tote bag. Have you ever had a moment like that? Just had to throw in that the model in the Vogue Wizard of Oz photo shoot was actress Kara Knightley. Just a fun tidbit. I can't wait to read Caroline's book. She says it's too soon to share what it's about and that she's protecting it like a baby bird. I get it. She did hint that it's going in a very different direction than anything else she's written so far. I remain intrigued. I adored her answer about how she maintains her mental health by looking at pictures of outer space so that she feels small in a good way to get back in touch with her sense of awe. Such a great answer. Be sure to sign up for her newsletter, Between a Rock and a Card Place on Substack. The link is in the show notes along with her Instagram handle at Caroline Kawa. If you enjoyed our chat, please hit follow, please share this episode or send me a note. I love when you do that. Talk soon. Thank you.